Episode 2, First Hunt Kilfawn Hall, 5th of November, 1925 My dearest Elizabeth, I am very sorry that you are not much improved. I had hoped to hear you were preparing to travel, I must admit. I will be thinking of you and wishing you a speedy recovery. Regarding the manse... I had not realised that it was being let out, but it is certainly a good spot to bring a family for the winter season. I hope your new neighbours provide a useful distraction from your malady. In the meantime, I am being well looked after by your brother. George was an hour late picking me up from the hotel, which for him, one must say, counts as being on time. As the newly installed Lord of Kilfawn Hall, George certainly seems to be taken to it with gusto. He pulled up outside the hotel in the most outlandish car. It was a long, low-slung, growling, open-top thing that looked like it would be more at home in the Grand Prix at Brooklands. Parked up beside the Hackneys, it was a tiger that had crept in amongst the sheep. Indeed, there was not enough room for both me and my cases, and in the end we had to arrange for them to be delivered. It was an equally exhilarating and alarming drive west to kill Fawn Hall. The roads are narrow and poorly surfaced, but George drove into the winter sun like they were his personal racetrack, and the cars, carts and horses mere chicanes to dodge wildly around. The countryside was deceptively quiet in the way of early winter. I had read the morning papers over breakfast, however, and the government has dispatched more armed special branch men from Dublin to deal with renewed banditry by the irregulars in this part of the country. Every so often, we would pass the gaunt, burnt remains of some fine old house, testament to the fighting of a few scant years ago. George was in fine form, shouting questions at me and pointing out features of interest that were already vanished in the distance by the time I turned to look. I couldn't hear most of it over the engine roar, and to be honest, vestiges of the seasickness from the day before were threatening to roll over me again by the time we swept past the gate lodge and up the long tree-lined track to the house. Caught as a dark silhouette against the fading light, it looked to me most unwelcoming at first, and my heart sank a little. Then, in a reckless spray of gravel, we were around to the west of the house and its front aspect. Warm light blazed from the large windows, and the staff were waiting to take our things. More inviting still, though, was the roaring fire in the lounge. But what a strange house your late father bought. I must remember to write later of the odd designs that are everywhere in the gardens and house. George has certainly taken on a challenge. The hall has fallen into a state of some dilapidation since your father decamped back to England. You mentioned before that you have not visited the Blackwater Valley since you were a young girl, when your father kept a summer property in Waterford. Indeed, that he purchased Kilfawn Hall before his untimely death with a view to a more permanent residence here despite your mother's reservations. I wonder, as a child when you came here, did you ever see it in its glory days then? Maybe even visit it? Saw it with a child's eye. To his credit, George has not been idle. He has recruited a full house staff in expectation of a busy social and hunting season 
ruled over firmly by the housekeeper, Mrs. Moore. Only half the house is truly habitable. The main hall and reception rooms and the south wing are now in good condition and electric lights have been newly installed. But the north wing is very much derelict still. In daylight, the house has a pleasingly plain look and is surrounded by gardens with stables and storehouses to the rear. Well, I say gardens, and I'm sure they were pretty once, but for the main, they are now fields filled with overgrown shrubs. I have also met Cook, and she is as terrifying as that breed often are. The house steward, Murphy, I took an immediate dislike to. Don't frown. I can picture you doing so as you read these words. You think I'm always too quick to judge. There is something in his eyes. George does not see it. Some men came back from the war changed greatly, and not in a good way. The house steward reminds me of them, but he's of the wrong age and probable allegiance to have served. Well, in that war at least. Anyway, I have been straight into it. George organised a hunt for yesterday to introduce me to local bigwigs and socialites. Unfortunately, however, the hunt was a poor start to the season. By the end, I was as soaked as I was in arrival in Ireland. And yes, I will be careful. It is bad enough for one of us to be under the weather. I could not bear it for you to come to the hall and find me bedridden in turn. So, to the hunt. The day started well, with overnight rain faltering and then giving way to a patchy sky, with more lowering clouds gathering on the horizon. We rode the horses up the track to the high fields. I had a fine chestnut, frisky, but she settled down once she realised I was no novice rider. It was the first hunt of the year for this pack of hounds, and a good number of riders had congregated. Various hangers-on were just departing in cars, ballyhooing and heading on to the meet point. George knew a considerable number of the riders, from which I take it that he has been busy on the social scene during the summer. I was introduced to a whirlwind of gentlemen and ladies, all excited for the hunt to begin, their breath steaming in the cold air. A young woman on a calm white mount came over to us. George was suddenly bashful. Most unlike him. Um, yes, John, I'd like you to meet Miss Lily King. Lily, um, let me introduce Captain John Ross, my future brother-in-law. This Lily seemed amused by George's shyness and reached over to shake my hand with a strong grip. She had heard of your illness and hoped that you would be well enough to travel soon. George was looking around and asked if her uncle was here too. Lily said no, to which George looked relieved. And then she added, he is intending to join us, but some new books arrived for him this morning, and he was so busy poring over them, I fear he may have lost track of time. I asked, what were these books that were so fascinating? She smiled. Oh, he fancies himself an expert in folklore. Get him in a rare good mood, and he'll lecture you in detail on our ancient gods and customs. She made a face. My mother doesn't really approve of him, but as she says, Needs must, and so here I am for the winter season, staying with my beloved uncle. It's not all bad, though. This last was said with a twinkle in her eye, as she looked pointedly at George, who went quite pink. I'll ask him more on her when I get the chance. But I'm writing of this, Lily, as I surmise from our chat that she's been sent to stay with her better-off relative by her mother, in the hope that she may make the most of the season and do a little hunting of her own. I briefly met the master of the hunt the day I arrived, a florid fellow with a magnificent moustache, and he told me that the hounds were in excellent form and he had high hopes of a good scent. He also told me that George went cub hunting with him in the summer 
to blood the new younger hounds and give them a taste for killing. By the time we arrived, the master had already taken the hounds to the cover we were going to draw first. And before long we heard their baying as they flushed out the fox. I saw it as an orange streak that disappeared through a hedgerow, and that was the first and last I saw of a fox that day. The scent took us across some big fields, and then we were into more enclosed countryside. The ground was firm, but there was always a hedge or a wall ahead to be jumped. Fun countryside to ride, but tiring. We got all spread out. George was somewhere ahead of me with Lily. I thought at first I was riding on my own at the point I wished to describe to you. But then I realised there was another rider coming up fast. I jumped the wall in front of me and heard the other rider do the same. Then the next. And it became a kind of game to me. I didn't look back behind me to spy who it was, but worked to stay just ahead of them. Yes, I indeed had gotten bored by the lack of obvious fox to chase. We entered a field larger than usual, and I could see the track the other riders had taken in the wet grass. The far boundary was an ugly mess of barbed wire and trees, and there was only one gap to be safely used. Well, I took out for it, intending to get through it first and then end the game and greet my mysterious competitor. I was almost in the gap, a low section of wall between trees and easy to jump, but with apparent room for one horse only. When I realised to my anger and horror that my companion was going for it too, and at the same time. It was bad and indeed dangerous form and I shouted out at them. I was committed and I had to take the jump, otherwise my horse would have been entangled in the wire. The other rider I swear sped up rather than man, and we both went through the gap at the same time. I swore at him as I desperately tried to pull my mount. Our legs were crushed between our horses we were so close. He jumped past me as if I was a nuisance in the way. Well, we both somehow got through the gap, but it was a close run thing on my part. I nearly fell, drew in all my skill to stay mounted, and brought my horse to an affronted halt. The other man, indifferent to me in my near plight, was already across the field and jumping again. Somewhat to my astonishment, it was none other than that strange gentleman I saw in the steam packet. He had swapped his old dark suit for a modern red riding jacket, but it was definitely him his long limbs sticking out at awkward angles. His mouth had been twisted in a snarl and his eyes locked straight ahead, as if I was not even there. Elizabeth, I was furious and fumed all the way to the meat, my humour all gone. I fully intended to confront the man, but he was nowhere to be seen. There was a bit of a bad mood all around, really. George was on his own, and when I asked after Lily, he said sourly, gone already with our interfering uncle. So yes, None of us were in good form. Well, that first fox had led us on a merry chase before slipping away. And that was the last fox anyone saw. Everyone felt robbed of a good day's hunting and worried that it would set a precedent for the season. There was even talk of local farmers shooting foxes to keep the hunt off their land. Normally the master would be feeling the criticism implied or spoken. But he was distracted and a little distraught as some of his hounds were missing. We had gone out with 16 and come back with 14. Several riders, myself and George included, offered to go with the poor man to where he last saw all of them. As we had approached that thicket, the cloud that had been steadily gathering all day opened into one of those drizzles that seems light, but quickly soaks through everything. We could see the track of the hunt as a dark line in the wet grass. The fox had veered away from the copse at first rather than enter. It must have felt the breath of the hounds on its back because it did turn and enter the thicket in the end. I thought that strange behaviour, not to dive straight into cover, but actively avoiding the wood, 
until it was that or risk getting caught. That was a dismal hour shouting for the hounds. The trees were spindly and dark with the rain. Miserable things, closely spaced, so we had to dismount and step carefully through the uneven, boggy ground. There was no sign of the damn dogs. It was as if they had vanished into thin air. We pushed on into those woods, calling to the hounds. Ground got softer and wetter so that we sank ankle deep in the mud. The trees were covered in baroque laceworks of lichen and the bare branches scratched and scraped at us as we passed. The land either side of us began to rise and I realised we had entered one of the overgrown, steep-sided valleys common to these parts. We emerged into a small clearing of long grass and reeds. In the middle was a low mound with a miserable, wind-blown and twisted hawthorn atop it. The mound was an ancient thing, like you see all over this island, but hidden and lost here, until now anyway. It was about four feet high and maybe 30 in diameter. The trees around us, sickly looking in this place, seemed to me to cower away from the mound. There was no sound but the rain and the uneasy shuffling of the horses. We finally gave up looking for the dogs, as the undergrowth beyond the clearing was a dense tangle. I moved towards the mound out of curiosity, leading my mount by the reins. It got increasingly frisky though, pulling at me, almost rearing, and I gave up in the end for fear that I might get clipped by a panicked hoof. Elizabeth, even the horses here are superstitious. I handed my reins to George and climbed the mound. Apart from the tortured tree, it was covered in straggly grass and old dead nettles. Water droplets clung to the bare branches of the hawthorn and shook from the grass as I trampled it, leaving dark footprints behind. To bring hawthorn into your house is to invite death in, apparently. Its flowers in the spring certainly have a strange mixed scent of sweetness and rotting meat. Maybe it was the darkening light, the cold seeping into me from my wet clothes, or the master's upset over his missing hounds. But I shivered then. The dark trees surrounding us seemed now to lean towards me as if reaching for me. This whole place with its dripping trees and ancient mound felt unfriendly, I suppose. Sinister, waiting. I had a sudden visceral vision of the war then, of the creeping through enemy trenches, revolver and knife in hand, expecting an ambush at every corner, the fear of dying and of letting oneself down by not dying. Stop fooling around, John, or let's get out of this bloody awful rain, George called out to me, and the moment passed. It was just a mound again, but I was glad to be gone from that dark dell. Word of the missing hounds must have got back to the hall, as I noticed a strange mood amongst the house staff, and asked your brother of it. Apparently a young boy from Kilfawn Village went missing the day of my sea voyage, vanished right off the face of the earth. Hope has faded that he will turn up, and indeed... The men from the village are talking about organising a search of the river. After all that, I had a rotten night's sleep, awaking with the certainty of bad dreams, but unable to remember them. I was sniffling and headachey this morning and was afraid I'd caught my cold from getting soaked two days in a row. However, by the afternoon it had passed. George gave me the keys to his car and I picked your great-aunt Edith up from the railway station, enjoying the power of the car outward and returning much more sedately. She was clearly put out that George hadn't picked her up but perked up considerably when I introduced myself. The noisy car put pay to any plans to grill me, and I handed her off to George as soon as we arrived back at the hall. I then promptly vanished upstairs. Yes, I, decorated war veteran, hid from an old lady. 
I am not ashamed. I parked myself in a small room on the third floor that looked out over the gardens and lit my pipe. The sun was low in the sky, casting long shadows and glittering off the heavy droplets on the grass blades and bare trees. To my amazement, in that particular angle of the sun and my vantage point, a patron was visible in the overgrown grounds, palimpsest of the original gardens. Whoever first planted the gardens had abjured the simple formal geometries of square and circle, in favour of that ancient triple spiral of the Celts. Some of them had been ploughed under by past farmers, but it was clear from my high room that the house was once surrounded by a necklace of these interlocking spirals. They would have made for a strange sort of maze, full of dead ends and going nowhere. Like a baffle to confuse visitors and protect the house from them. Superstition, eh? It seeps into us all here. George has brought in a Mr. Simmons from Guildford to oversee the restoration. I gather he is a big name in gardens, mostly from the man himself. He's a novo type who would be easier to like if he didn't try so hard. I remembered now Mr. Simmons going on about triskelions. They would be the old Celtic triple spirals I was looking at. They are carved everywhere in the house itself. Mr. Simmons is busy clearing around them and mapping out the paths and plantings to replace the spirals. So one day soon we will be able to walk them again and with our footsteps trace out their loops and dead ends. It's time for me now to change for dinner. George has invited a few of the neighbours over. No, not Lily, though I fully intend to ask him about her, but more pertinently about that bore of a man and his strange behaviour. To date, notwithstanding the house steward, everyone I've engaged with has been most friendly, and I would like to find out more about this gentleman. I fear he has something against me, even if I know him not. The hounds remain missing, disappeared like that boy from the village. It is all very odd. Write to me, Elizabeth, and tell me you are recovered and on your way. I've avoided your great aunt Edith's question so far, but that will be impossible this evening. I expect a thorough inquisition. Yours lovingly, John. Clatbury, Wilts, 6th of November, 1925. My dear John, it is good to hear you arrived safely at Kilforn, despite George's best efforts to the contrary, and reading all the details of your exploits with the hounds did make me fear for your well-being. I had hoped you were nicely rested. What a place Kilforn sounds! I had no idea what father was up to in the days when he kept disappearing mysteriously to Waterford for some business, which he assured us was for our benefit. I don't recall it as a child, but I do believe there may be some notices and pictures amongst his papers, which mother has somewhere. I will, however, have to bide my time before approaching her on this sensitive topic. At the moment, she is concerned mainly for my health, which is much the same as before, showing no improvement. There is no chance I will be able to go out with a hunt any time soon. It is a shame to think of George electrifying Kilforn. I am sure it does not need it. If the hall were mine and not in the hands of my younger brother, 
You know my views on the archaic custom of patrilineage. I would seek to preserve, to retain the mystique and the aura around the place, rather than to sweep that away with mod cons. That may surprise you, John, as I know we both believe ourselves to be forward-thinking, progressive individuals. However, while I'm all in favour of modernism where it is due, I do not wish it to be across the board and done for the sake of it. Although it is deeply unfashionable these days, I feel there is still something of the late Victorian Gothicism in me. There are some mysteries here too. The mound you described reminds me of one similar on the upper slopes of the nearby downs, a few miles from here. This mound may be Iron Age, many of them are hereabouts, but it has a more recent sinister significance as being the local gibbet where farmers would hang the bodies of killed vermin to deter their kin from the area. Naked bones, winnowed and bleached in the wind, would hang there day in, day out. Rumour has it that once, a hundred years ago or more, a human body was found hanged at the gibbet. A young lady who had aroused the anger of the local squire, possibly by carrying his child. I shudder to recall this. It is not a subject I delight in. But I wonder if the mound in which you had your discomforting experience had a similar dark history and that its ghost lingers there still? Our new neighbour from the manse, Roland, called round this morning to introduce himself, reeking of wood smoke, which did not do my poor lungs any good whatsoever. On my coughing, in an obvious but discreet manner, he apologised for his aroma and explained last night being the fifth, there had been a spectacular bonfire with a most remarkable long-limbed Guy Fawkes who was burned completely on top of the magnificent fire with sparks flying everywhere. It did make me feel sad that I was not in sufficient health to be able to partake. Roland is, among other things, a photographer and despite the darkness of night, he believes the light from the bonfire was sufficient to have captured a few good images without the use of flash photography. I look forward to seeing them. In terms of my joining you, I await the prognosis of Dr Mondrell, but irrespective of his view, I do not yet feel strong enough to undertake a combined land and sea voyage. Mother has some hot broth warming for me, which I look forward to supping. I will keep you updated. Meanwhile, I look forward to hearing more of this Lily. Your loving fiancée, Elizabeth. enjoyed what you've just listened to, please subscribe, review or share to help us flourish.